to infinity and beyond. What a way to begin a sermon. What do you think? Yeah, my uh, heroes, the Puritans, would not have been a big fan of that. But hey, what can I say? I think it would be safe to say that Buzz Lightyear really uh, immortalized the words to infinity and beyond. Made uh, really those words a part of American life. Ask almost any young adult who uttered the words to infinity and beyond. A majority of young adults will answer Buzz Lightyear. They would give him proper credit. However, I do need to say as a footnote, uh, that phrase, to infinity and beyond, I don't think Buzz Lightyear truly understands the nature of infinity because there is nothing beyond infinity. I'll let you think about that. We are in the middle of a sermon series that we have entitled God of Wonders. And this morning's message, appropriately titled, is... That God is infinite and eternal. Of course, over the last few weeks, we have taken the time to study a few attributes of God that we have uh, classified as incommunicable attributes. The incommunicable attributes. These are attributes that the Creator does not share with the creature. These are attributes that, as uh, fallen, finite creatures, that's you and me, we frankly have a difficult time understanding the incommunicable attributes because as creatures, as finite creatures, we simply can't wrap our minds around these attributes. We don't participate in any way, shape, or form with these attributes. One of those attributes that we learned about was the attribute of aseity. That is to say that God finds his existence in himself. Now you see why it's so hard for us to to comprehend this first incommunicable attribute. Then we looked at the attribute that we described as the immutability of God. Simply put, God does not change. Now today, the attributes of infinity and eternality are also, along with aseity and incommunicability, they are numbered among the incommunicable attributes of God. As we open the Word of God this morning to study the infinity and the eternality of God, I, I trust that as I have mentioned each, each week that your knowledge of God, your, your love for God, would blossom, that it would grow, that it would expand. I pray that as creatures, as fallen creatures, that in our minds and in our hearts, that the creator of the universe would be highly exalted in our minds, that he would not only be highly exalted in our hearts and minds, but we would be laid low. And that is the proper place for us to be as we see this massive, massive distinction between the creator and the creature. I want you to wrestle a little bit with these attributes this morning by 
wrestling, first of all, with the infinity of God. God is infinite. I want to give you a very basic definition, as we did last week when we described immutability. I want to describe infinity by saying this, that God is absolutely free from limits or limitations. When you think of the infinity of God, remember that God is absolutely free from limits and limitations. This is difficult. This is something that we find very difficult to understand. Why? Because we as creatures are limited in how many respects? Every respect. We are limited in our knowledge. We are limited in our strength. We are limited in our abilities, unlike some presidential contenders seem to think. We are limited in our lifespans. None of us will live forever on this earth in these physical bodies. Our finances are limited. There is nothing about us as creatures that is infinite. Why? Because we, by definition, are creatures. A.W. Tozer provides a helpful list of words that helps us to understand this attribute that we're referring to as God's infinity. He says this, infinitude, of course, means limitlessness, as we've already seen. And it is obviously impossible for a limited mind to grasp the unlimited. And so once again, I want to direct your attention to the deep end of the pool. And as, as I was thinking as we were worshiping together, really, if you think about it, the rest of this series, we're not going to go to the shallow end of the pool, are we? We're going to stay in the deep end of the pool and we're going to dive deeply into the pool of God's attributes. When a ship went down in the Bermuda Triangle just a few days ago, I heard a scientist say on the radio, quote, those waters are at least 15,000 feet deep. We will never find that ship. Well, what we're going to do today and what we will do for the rest of our series together is we're going deeper than 15,000 feet. We're going to go to 20,000 feet, to 50,000 feet, to 100,000 feet. We're going as deep as our minds will enable us to go on. By God's grace, we will discover a great, majestic, and glorious God. You know, when we consider the infinity of God, it takes something deeper than 15,000 feet. We're going somewhere where the human mind can scarcely comprehend. You remember those words at the end of Romans chapter 11 that I have quoted many times over the last several months. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then Paul concludes Romans chapter 11 with these majestic words. I can just imagine him as he penned these words. By the way, when you answer the question, who penned the word of God? Be careful with your answer. Because if you answer God wrote the word of God, that would be an incorrect answer. If you say that man wrote the word of God, that would be an incorrect answer. 
And so who wrote the word of God? God and man. God uses, he uses the creature to pen his word. And here's what Paul says at the end of Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul putting his pen down and just... After 11 chapters of doctrine, he concludes with this high theological note. Tozer continues, he says, Properly, the word infinity can be used of no created thing and of no one but God. God is the only one in the universe who we can, who we can gaze at and say, You are the infinite God. Tozer says, when we say that God is infinite... We mean he knows no bounds. Whatever God is and all that God is, he is without limit. To say that God is infinite is to say that he is measureless. Now, if you have a mathematical mind, that is very difficult for you to comprehend. Because we, if you have a mathematical mind, you love to measure things. You measure things in inches or centimeters or meters. You measure things in, in terms of uh, gallons. You measure things in terms of pounds or kilograms. You measure things in terms of, of miles or kilometers. Don't you love the plug for the metric system? I have no idea why I just said that. But we, we love to, to measure things. Some of us are... are, are Overly consumed with standing on a certain instrument every morning. Oh, 125. Unbelievable. That's not me, by the way. (laughs) One writer puts it this way. He says, our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity, energy, numbers, speed, but never God. We cannot speak of measure or amount or size or weight at the same time be speaking of God. For these tell of degrees and there are no degrees in God. Can you wrap your mind around that? God simply cannot be measured. Dr. John Frame says infinite then will simply be the opposite of someone help me. Infinite will be the opposite of finite. Thank you, April. Infinite is the opposite of finite. Another way of expressing the biblical creator-creature distinction. And we will come back to this time and time again. We see, recognize, and affirm that God is the creator, the one who is high and lifted up. We are the creatures who are sinful And we are indeed sinners by nature and by choice. Frame continues, we should understand God's infinity in both of these ways. Number one, no creature can place limits on God. And number two, God's attributes are supremely perfect without any flaw. It may surprise you to learn that it is not just the unbelieving world, but there are Christian There are pastors and theologians who are in the habit of limiting God. May it never be. 
I want to take a moment with you and move from a definition of infinity to a description of infinity and give a a more broad description of this incommunicable attribute. Number one, God is not limited by the universe or by time or by space. Once again, we we are face-to-face with why the theologians have referred to this as the incommunicable, one of the incommunicable attributes of God. Would you open your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 24, a verse that we have seen in a previous study but bears repeating. As you turn to Acts chapter 17, recall that this is the address of the Apostle Paul on... The Areopagus. He's standing in the midst of the Areopagus and he addresses the men of Athens. These are the philosophers of the day. These are the learned individuals and they are about to uh, receive a little piece of theological education. Paul says this in verse 24. The God who made the world. I want you to stop there and think about that. What is Paul arguing for in this verse? He argues that God is the creator. God made everything in existence. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You see, when we say that God is not limited by time or space, we mean this. God, get your aspirin ready. God is infinite in relation to time. He is infinite in relation to time. Millard Erickson wisely says that God is the one who brought space and time into being. He was before there was space. He cannot be localized at a particular point. There can be no plotting of his location on a set of coordinates. That is to say, God is simply not limited by the universe or by time or by space. Number two, I want you to see that God cannot be confined to a particular place. Now, next week we will study this in greater detail as we learn about the omnipresence of God. It is related to his attribute of infinity. The psalmist describes this in Psalm 139. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light will be brought about at night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Once again, God simply cannot be confined to a particular place. And again, as we learn about this next week, keep this in mind that God is with us now. God is with us now and he is with other believers all around the world. He is not limited by time or space. He is not confined to a particular place. As we explore the attribute of infinity, I want you to see a third thing, and that is that God's infinity, as we will learn again next week, relates to his knowledge. It relates to his knowledge. 
Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God is unlimited in his knowledge. And then finally, notice with me that God is infinite in his relation to events in the universe. One writer says that he has from all eternity determined what he is now doing. Thus, his actions are not in any sense reactions to developments. He does not get taken by surprise or have to change his plans. You see, as we come together as the family of God, we we confess and admit together that God is a God of infinity. And I ask, can you wrap your minds around that beautiful reality? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. As the finite creature, we struggle with wrapping our minds around the infinity of God. But that does not make it untrue, does it? We struggle to comprehend it, but we embrace it as true. A few points of application for your encouragement. First of all, the infinity of God reminds us how how big he is and how small we are. Many of you have been on an airplane and you you fly out of SeaTac or you fly out of the Bellingham Airport and you get to a cruising level of 29 or 30,000 feet and you see that little mountain, Mount Rainier. And then you, you, you come closer into land and you see the cars, you see those little ants on the ground. That's a, a microcosm of what it's like to compare the infinite God to the creature, the infinity of God reminds us of how big he is and how small we are. Secondly, the infinity of God reminds us once again of the importance of drawing a distinction between the creator and the creature. I would challenge you with this as when you are in discussions with your unbelieving friends, listen very carefully To see if a distinction is drawn between the creator and the creature. Oftentimes there will be no distinction. Oftentimes the creator and the creature will be merged together. Oftentimes you will see that someone either rejects the creator. That's a position of atheism. Or they believe that the creature, or I should say the creator is a part of creation. Once again, make sure they are distinguished. Whenever you talk to someone who blends the creator with the creature, you know that you're walking on dangerous worldview territory. And I would submit to you that that is something that we as the the people of God need to confront. We need to challenge people if they're not embracing the creator creature distinction. Number 3, the infinity of God reminds us of the depth of who he is and all that he can accomplish. When I was with my friend at Harborview a few days ago, he was quick to tell me that the doctors were sober in their assessment of Calvin's condition, and they said, we we can't promise you anything about his condition. But I love Mike's response to me. He said, but these doctors don't understand that we worship a great God. That was my friend's way of saying, we worship a God who is infinite. We worship a God who has the ability to reach down into our lives and to help this young man on a hospital bed. He is infinite in his relation to all things. 
I want to move forward now and look at another incommunicable attribute, the attribute of God's eternality. God is eternal, and once again, give you a brief definition. This comes from Wayne Grudem, who has helped me over the years to understand this very important attribute. He says this, God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all time equally and vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. Once again, do you see why we refer to these as incommunicable attributes? God sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and he acts in time. One of the premier theologians of the 20th century, a Presbyterian theologian by the name of Louis Burkhoff, describes eternality in these terms. He says it's that perfection of God whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of his existence in one, exist, in one indivisible present. You say, what does that mean? That means God is eternal. It's that perfection of God where he is elevated above all temporal limits. Now, as we did with the infinity of God, I want to take a few minutes and provide uh, some more descriptions of eternality. And have you turn with me to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. The word of God is clear as we describe this very important attribute that God has, as Wayne Grudem described, God has no beginning and he has no end. He has no beginning and he has no end. One of the presidential candidates, I think I can, you, you would guess who it is, is a man who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Ben Carson. And he was describing why he was a six-day creationist. It's pretty basic information. But very important information is I shared with my wife uh, what one of the news commentators was saying, a man who was highly respected. He said, listen, he said, if if Ben Carson wants to believe in a literal Adam and Eve, fine, I'll, I'll give him that. If he wants to believe that there was a literal Garden of Eden and the implication was a, a literal snake or a literal serpent who tempted Eve and Adam and Eve ate the fruit, fine, I'll give him that. But to reject a belief in evolution, that is simply foolish. And I'm driving down the road, kind of swerving, saying, I can't believe, I should be able to believe, but I can't believe a, a man of, of this man's stature would say it's foolish to reject the theory of evolution, a theory that has never been proven, and a theory that will never be proven. The theory of evolution is, is a laughingstock. I would challenge you this morning, if you believe in the theory of evolution, where did it all come from? You see, there has to be, to get the ball rolling, there has to be what Thomas Aquinas called a first cause. And who is that first cause? The first cause is the infinite, eternal God of the universe. God has no beginning or end. Look at Psalm chapter 90, verse 1. 
The word of God says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. That is to say, before the mountains were created or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Would you turn back with me to the book of Job, just right before the book of Psalms, the book of Job to Psalm chapter th- or Job chapter 36, verse 26, Job 36, verse 26. And here we see once again, the eternality of the living God. Behold, verse 26 says, God is great. And we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Why does the writer say he's unsearchable? Because he is the eternal, infinite God. The great Princetonian theologian Charles Hodge says it like this. God is without beginning and has no end of days. He is and always has been. Now, I want to break into that quote and, and turn your attention back to the aseity of God. And we'll begin to see how these attributes begin to make sense. He has always been and has always been, says Hodge, and always will be. How do we know that? Because God finds his existence in himself. He has always existed. He's the only one in the universe that can say, I have always existed. Hodge continues, to him, to God, there is neither past nor future, that the past and the future are always equally present to him. Can you imagine that? The past, the future, and the present are all equally present to him. The Bible tells us this about the eternal God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. So says Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus himself describes this attribute of eternality. You remember in John chapter 8, we studied this several months ago, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Don't you love that? Written in the present tense in the Greek, if you recall, which is to say that he says, I have always existed, I exist today, and I will exist to all eternity. It blew the Jewish scholars away. It made them mad in their mind and in their emotions. Secondly, I want you to see that God sees and knows every event with clarity. He sees every joyful event with clarity. He sees every heartbreaking event with clarity because he is the eternal God. Psalm 90 verse 4 says this, For a thousand years, a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You know what's amazing to me about that particular scripture? I don't know about you, but I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. (laughs) Anyone with me? None of you. How many of you remember you had for breakfast last week this time? None of us. We have no idea. How many of you remember the name of your second grade teacher? A few of you. How many of you don't remember the name of your second grade teacher? Okay. With the living God, he, he has it all. It's all in his mind. It's all figured out. He sees everything with perfect clarity. 
God views each detail as if it just happened from creation to the present and and his eternity extends into millions and millions and millions of years into the future ad infinitum. It's absolutely astonishing. This is the God that we worship. Number three, I want you to see that God sees events in time. You remember, he stands outside of time, but he sees events in time. And here's the astonishing thing. He acts in time. I don't understand that. But the Bible tells us that he acts in time. Second Peter 3, 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. You ask, how does this relate to me and my practical daily life? Here we stand in 2015 and many of you are concerned about the next presidential election, as you should be. Many of you are concerned about what's happening in the Middle East, as you should be. Many of you are concerned about uh, the education of your children. You're concerned about climate. You're, con- you're concerned about all manner of, of things in our culture. But remember this, God is an eternal God. He has all things in the palm of his hand. Now, I want you to think about the implications of a God who perhaps is not eternal. We did this last week with the immutability of God. I want to uh, plug in this equation with the eternality of God. If it could be posited, as some people say, that God is not eternal, that would mean he's not immutable. Does that make sense? If God is not eternal, he can't possibly be immutable. If God is not eternal, that would mean that he would not be infinitely perfect. If he's not eternal, he would not be infinitely perfect. If he's not eternal, he would not be omnipotent, as we will learn next week. If he is not eternal, he would not be, he could not be the first cause And I hope you're putting all these things together in your mind, because if we add this composite together, if God is not immutable, perfect, omnipotent, or the first cause, that would mean something. That would mean he is not. You got it, don't you, Frank? He's not God. He's simply not God. I want to apply this truth as we close this morning. Just a few brief points of application. First, the eternity of God. I know what many of you are thinking right now. This is, this is the deep end of the pool. That's putting it mildly, right? Wow. What do we do with this truth from Scripture? Well, the eternity of God should spark a deeper interest into the unfathomable ways of God. I want to encourage you with this. Instead of fighting the eternality of God and saying, man, this, this is way, way, way over my head. I'm, I'm just going to hold out for the sermon on the love of God. And I can't wait to preach on the love of God. Or I'm going to hold out for the sermon on the mercy of God. And I can't wait to preach about the mercy of God. Instead of wrestling to a degree where you scratch your head and get a headache and get frustrated with the eternality of God, I want to encourage you to 
to push you to a deeper level. I want to encourage you to take this attribute and, 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 and move you where you're motivated to study and to learn about the unfathomable ways of God. And when you move in that direction, when you're willing to go to the deep end of the pool, here's what happens. Life transformation begins to take shape. Your worship begins to expand as you worship this God who is infinite and eternal. Jonathan Edwards, when he was a young man, used to say this. He used to say, oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I like that. Can you imagine what would happen if, if all of us, young people and moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas, if we all embraced that motto of Edwards to say, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. If we think with, with an eternal perspective, I can guarantee you life transformation is right around the corner. Number two, the eternity of God should have a profound effect on our hearts. You see, this is not just a, a, an attribute for us to catalog in our mind and say, well, I, I went to Christ Fellowship today and, and I learned about the the eternity and the infinity of God. No, rather, the eternity of God should deeply affect what the Puritans called our affections or our heart. One Puritan writer says it like this, the thought of God's eternity should make us have high, adoring thoughts of God. Once again, I want to challenge you with this. If you say, it's too heavy, it's too much to know, I want to challenge you with Thomas Watson's quote that the eternity of God should cause you to have adoring thoughts concerning the living God. Number three, the eternity of God should cause us to hope in God and the reality of our future eternal home. And to point this out, I would have you turn with me to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter five. And unless you're all uh, donning iPads and Kindles this morning, I don't hear any pages turning. Second Corinthians chapter five. Would you look at these words with me? Verses two to five, or let's start in verse one and listen to what the apostle Paul says. Here, here is a man who who lived 1,700 years before Jonathan Edwards, who said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And this is exactly what Paul does here. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made from hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. You see, Paul has a habit in the New Testament of thinking eternally. He has his eyes fixated on the living God, an example for us. Finally, the eternity of God should sober us up. The eternity of God should remind us of our eternal rewards, that is for believers, and the eternity of God should remind us of eternal judgment for unbelievers. 
If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, my prayer is this, is that upon hearing about the infinity of God and the eternity of God and seeing the radical distinction between the creator and the creature, that you would say, God of the universe, the God that Paul proclaimed to the, to the philosophers in Acts chapter 17, that you would say, you are a majestic God. You are a big God. You are a God of infinity and eternality. And I realize as the creature, I am sinful. And I realize that if I died today, I would spend eternity in hell. And that I would face the almighty wrath of the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Lord, would you have mercy on this fallen creature? Would you have mercy on this creature who has scorned your law and enjoyed it every step of the way? Today is the day of salvation. The word of God tells you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I pray at Christ Fellowship that you would never grow weary of hearing those words. Those are words that, uh, Lord willing, you will hear from this pulpit every week. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. As Jerry Bridges has famously said, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We are in desperate need of the gospel. And so God is infinite. God is eternal. Yet the conclusion that I have reached is this. Especially in America, we have become masters. We have become absolute masters at minimizing God. We have somehow taken this infinite, eternal God, and we have, we have whittled him down to this little microcosm God that, that we can get our hands around, that we can grasp, that we can handle, and that God, the biblical writers call an idol. That God is an idol, and he is not God at all. And so we need to come face-to-face with the God of the universe, who is both infinite and eternal. Instead of boxing God in, instead of creating a, a God of our own making, we must hold him up as the infinite God, as the eternal God, and worship him as such. As we close, my challenge to you is this today. Have you grown accustomed to minimizing God? Have you whittled him down so that you can get your hands around him? Or will you move forward into the future and say, I will worship God exactly as he is presented in Scripture? Oh, that we would rightly approach God as infinite and eternal. May we worship the living God in spirit and in truth. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning. Eternal, infinite God, we uh, thank you uh, for who you are. Uh, We confess that we, once again, have become masters at whittling you down, at uh, creating really a God in our own image, and that is no God at all. It's an idol, and so uh, we confess this idolatry to you, God. Indeed, Calvin was on target when he said that the human heart is like an idol factory, churning out idols every day. God, help us to recognize that tendency in ourselves. We are sinners uh, by nature and choice. We have a propensity to the sin of idolatry. As we recognize that, God, we want to turn our attention to you and worship you how you are presented in the Scripture. 
We want to worship you rightly and remember Tozer's words from so many years ago that the way we conceive of God is the most important thing about us. May we perceive you rightly. May we perceive you biblically. May we hold to the scriptures as our highest authority that paint a beautiful portrait of who you are, the God of aseity, the God of immutability, the God who is eternal, and the God who is infinite. God, we confess that these are weighty, weighty realities. But Lord, as we learn together, as we grow together, I pray that as these things uh, take place here at Christ Fellowship, that our worship of you would be more fresh, it would be more alive, it would be sweet, it would be biblical. And now, even as we continue to sing, as Jason and the worship team leads us, may we recall these truths that we have studied today, that you are eternal, that you are infinite. We worship you as such. For it's in Christ's worthy name we pray. Amen. I want to leave you with two scriptures this morning that relate to the infinity and the eternality of God. Here's what God's word says. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. We serve a, a majestic, totally transcendent God. Let me encourage you to just worship him in spirit and truth on this day as we're dismissed today. We have some gentlemen uh, outside the sanctuary with some offering bags. Uh, we want to make sure to get back in the habit of uh, uh, contributing to the Benevolence Fund. This is a fund to help needy people here at Christ Fellowship and also in the community. So I want to encourage you to be generous givers. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for all that you are once again. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the country that we live in where we can worship you uh, freely. God, we don't know how much longer uh, that freedom will last. But in these days, we are so thankful for uh, the gifts that you've bestowed on us. We thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that as we leave today, that uh, your character would be on our lips and on our hearts and on our minds, that we would recall a God who is infinite, a God who is eternal, that we would give you uh, the worship that you rightly deserve. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.